Hi, I'm Andy Bush. How are you doing? We trust you are well. Welcome along to another episode of Scarred for Life, a deep dive into the dark dystopian pop culture of the 1970s, 80s and beyond. I'm joined as ever by Steve Brotherston and David Lawrence, co-authors of the terrifying Scarred for Life books. Every week we'll be speaking to a special guest who'll be bringing with them three horrific childhood memories of someone that's literally petrified them since they were kids. But before we say hello to this week's guest, let's dip our toes into some of our listeners' scars. Thank you so much to everybody who's got in touch with us uh, on our Twitter at Scarred for Life 2 and has shared stuff that, uh, stuff that scarred them. Ian Winterton's been on. He says, 1984, I'm age 12. Not long after viewing Threads had sent our anxiety regarding atomic war into overdrive, the school tested its air raid siren during lessons. <laughs> Cue 30 pupils in my class panicking, sobbing, screaming, diving under desks. Uh, Threads seems to have had a profound effect on people, hasn't it, guys? Definitely, definitely. It's the big one. This is the thing. It's I've seen it let's see three times in my lifetime once three and a half i couldn't get through it on transmission because it just destroyed me it was repeated about a month later i think it was that's when i saw it in full and it wrecked me because this was at the height of the cold war and i thought we were all gonna die i got it on vhs in the mid 90s when everyone was happy and clubbing and on e and went home one sunny kind of july sunday Watched it for old time's sake, and it destroyed me for another fortnight. And I, it was almost like I would lay in bed, and through the bedroom window I could see the backs of the houses in the next street on, and it was almost like there was an yeah. overlaid image of rubble that I could see. It's a weird thing to describe. Oh wow! But I couldn't, like, not walk around the streets without imagining flattened buildings and just vaporized. It really wrecked my head. I saw it again getting on about 10, 12 years ago thinking I'd be okay again. It destroyed me for another fortnight. Basically, me and Dave are going through kind of Rocky-style training to steal ourselves to watch it again, to write about it in our third book because it never, (laughs) ever loses its power. Amazing. Well, we love that. We love hearing from you guys. If there's someone that scared or scarred you when you were a kid, you can get in touch at Scarred for Life 2 on Twitter, uh, Scarred for Life book on Instagram, and there's a, a brilliant chat on our Facebook page as well. Uh, drop us a message there. Well, let's move on to our special guest. He is an award-winning Leeds-born screenwriter, author, and musician who grew to fame as one of the League of Gentlemen, although he was more of a Brian Eno type, preferring an off-screen writing and producing role, making the odd cameo along the way. He is co-creator, along with Scarred for Life, Illuminae and Denial of Ghost Stories, a supernatural play that broke box office records during its runs at Liverpool Playhouse and Lyric Hammersmith. A film version of Ghost Stories, which he co-directed and co-wrote, premiered in 2017. He and Andy Nyman's latest collaboration is the spy magician thriller novel The Warlock Effect, which is available now. His other books include short story collections Never Trust a Rabbit and The Cranes That Built the Cranes. And his guide to horror films, Bright Darkness, is essential reading for any fan. On top of it all, he is the keyboard player for situationist chamber pop ensemble Rudolf Rocker. Influenced by the supernatural stories of Robert Eichmann, he grew up absorbing the pop culture that Scar for Life is built on. And while ill as a child, he wants faked wellness so that he could go and see 2001 A Space Odyssey. Welcome to Scar for Life, the amazing Jeremy Dyson. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for that, um, that summary. Uh, Je- uh, Jeremy, amazing to have you on. Uh, can you remember what it was like when you first started out with League of Gentlemen? Did you ever think back then it would ever get so huge as it is now? Oh no! And um, God, when we first, you know, when we first got together, when we found each other and started doing l- live shows, which was on a very small scale, um, you know, we were 
we were playing 50 seat little 50 seat venues i think we all we were very ambitious all, all of us and so we were we, you know we all wanted to find careers doing something like we've ended up doing but i think as far as the league when we imagined that the peak of that success as an impossible dream might be to have one series on on bbc2 and we always thought if that happened it would be a it would be a very niche thing because we thought it was what we were doing was was niche it was you know it was scarred for life as comedy series essentially and High honor. Uh, we didn't anticipate there being a large audience for it and in fact it wasn't until after the first series had gone out it was actually after the second series had gone out we went uh, we had did a first tour and and so previous to that, the last live shows we'd done had been at the Gatehouse Theatre in in Highgate, and um, which was a sort of 150-seat venue. And so we did we we started doing this tour, and it was selling out very quickly. So we moved up to bigger venues. And so the first night of the tour was uh, the old Colston Hall in Bristol, which is no longer called that, and. Um, and I stood in the foyer with the promoter, Paul, and we watched this audience pouring in. And, you know, what well, it must have been, I suppose it was a 1,500-seat venue, 1,800-seat venue, so 10 times anything we'd ever played before. And this audience pouring in, you could not pin them down. You couldn't, you couldn't make sense of it. Paul stood there saying, who are these people? <laughs> <laughs> and there were there were students, you know, because then comedy was mainly a sort of student thing in there. This was sort of late now, uh, well, 2000. Um, and it was, you know, it, Vic and Bob and her, were huge, had been the huge thing touring before that, who well, had a broader audience than students, but it was young people. But this wasn't just young people. There, there were young people, but there were families turning up. There were old people there were it was you could not work out what this constituency was but there was there was loads of them and um that's when we realized that we'd sort of tapped this this vein that we didn't even know existed and it was uh, it was quite a ride it was extraordinary I mean, through my work on the radio, I've interviewed quite a few bands that have ended up splitting up because, they, you know, you end up with like a dominant party and then there's a bit of factionalism against it uh, with, with all of it. And it's very hard to keep things on an even keel over a long career like you guys have had. Are you quite democratic in the League of Gentlemen? How does it kind of work? We were, we were painfully democratic, yes. Well, not painfully, but kind of scrupulously democratic. And maybe that's one of the things that, um, that contributed to that um, lack of acrimony. Um, so I, when, when it came to what material went into the shows, into the, into the first live shows that we were doing when we went up to Edinburgh for the first time, we had to select material. Steve Pemberton came up with this elaborate, um, sort of system of proportional representation so that you could vote anonymously on what material was going to, we were going to select to go. And it was in such a way that you never, you didn't, you didn't know who'd voted for what and you couldn't vote vote for your own too many times and uh God, that would breed paranoia with me i'd just get so paranoid thinking who is it who's, who's voting, who's me voting down? against me <laughs> yeah. it's like a black ball you're not sure <laughs> yeah <laughs> well it was uh it kind of bypassed that and that was sort of how we continued but we were always you know we were friends and we 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 loved what we were doing and we never took it for granted and um we we always felt privileged to be doing it and 
so we took care of it you know we took we took care of each other really and um and so when we when we wound it down which was after about 10 years of doing it um and we did a last tour in 2005 it wasn't because we did we fell out it was simply that it had reached a natural pause point and uh and everyone had other things that they wanted to do and explore and so it was lovely that there was no um no falling out as as you say and in, in, that's not necessarily the norm in collaborative ventures no, absolutely. so then when we came back together about five or six years ago to we did uh some anniversary specials for the bbc and then we did another big tour um it was such a pleasure you know it's such a pleasure to come back to it after i've been 12 or 13 years i guess and um and then go out and find there was still an audience for it um because we we didn't know whether that was going to be the case either but um so yes it's been it's been a wonderful blessing in all our lives i think we'd all say the same thing um, and as i said in the intro you grew up influenced by the supernatural stories of uh, robert eichmann and you've written in that genre ever since why is this work so important to you um what do you think are the key ingredients of it, of what makes a great ghost story or something scary well i i actually did a um I did a. I wrote my own essay on what makes a great ghost story. About uh, when was it? It was about two thousand and five, two thousand and six. I was I was working on a trying to develop an anthology series, um, a horror anthology series, and I did. I thought in order to do this well, I need to analyze what makes a good ghost story. And I sat down. I made a list of my, I think, ten favorite ghost stories, and looked for all the things in common. And it boiled down to about three or four qualities that they all seem to have in common and um and there's some obvious ones like the the hero protagonist has to be on their own uh for when it gets to the spooky bits that's that was pretty much always the case and not just on their own but very isolated so hmm. uh you would see this this pattern in many stories where people would go a long way somewhere and then they'd go even further and that that cropped up across they so they go a long way away from other people and then they'd have to go even further so there's a great example of that in pet cemetery the stephen king novel where um the hero's being taken by his neighbor to the pet cemetery and it's a long walk in the dark through the woods and then that's not it. They have to go somewhere even further. There's like a second threshold they have to go across. And it's really frightening. And and that pattern it was there in so many different stories. And then there, all, there was always a moral element. So there's always a sin in a ghost story. And uh, and that's 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 a really big part of it. And and then there was a, there was another thing that was really interesting that all the best ghost stories have very strange and odd details in them, very singular things. So, like, there's a story by D.H. Lawrence called the um, Rocking Horse Winner, that has is uh, which is a, a boy riding on this. I won't spoil it, but this um, sort of cursed rocking horse, and it's such a weird detail. It's, mm. it's such a strange detail, and and how it's used in the story, and and that was something that came up again and again. All the stories that I really loved had a very strange detail. So it was those. It was those four things. It was the sin. The strange detail, the isolation, and the sort of double journey into into the abyss seemed to be the thing that tied all these stories I love together. So that when me and Andy 
a number of years later started working on Ghost Stories the play, we definitely drew on all of that very quite consciously to yeah. um, to sort of try and make something that will get under people's skin. Steve? Yeah, when I was reading about your previous interviews that you've done, you had Robert Aikman kept coming up, but also Shiver and Shake comic kept oh, coming yeah. up. And I was... I was delighted to read that because I was a big Shiver and Shake fan. Well, I was a Shiver fan, not a Shake fan. The elephant-headed and boy the elephants, did yeah. nothing for me. I, I would say And when same. I read that, yeah, it, it was like a light bulb went off in my head because when I think back to League of Gentlemen, there's certain characters like um, Tubbs and Edward, um, Hilary Briss, a few others, that if you tweak them and kind of tone them down a lot, they would fit in Shiver and Shake or Monster Fun. I could see them being drawn by Leo Baxendale, that ghastly, macabre, but still very reader-friendly and child-friendly. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a kind of English grotesque that, that, yeah. that Leo Baxendale in particular specialised in. And that, and it's also, it's got its antecedents in other older English cartoonists like Ronald Searle and... So that was me and Mark were very sensitive to that. I think we both got. I think Mark entered had actually had you know the thing where you could send in your own picture of a monster. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I, I think Mark had one in. <laughs> wow, sure, what know. an accolade! Yeah, because Mark's very good, very good um, artist, and uh, so he was always drawing as a kid. I'm pretty sure he did. Yeah, if you if you get him on as a guest, which you surely must, um, ask him. You must ask him about that. Dave? Yeah, I was just going to say back to what you said about the, the physical distance that people have to go in these horror stories. There's, there seems to be uh, quite often a mental distance as well. They're usually, they're usually a, an academic going somewhere, aren't they? They're just... Yeah, or they're, that, that's, that's another thing. That the, the conflict between reason and the irrational is, is definitely uh, present in many ghost stories. I mean, it's obviously in M.R. James, as, as yeah. you like to say, there's, uh, they're, they're very often lonely academics um but also the yeah the, well the physical distance and the mental distance so ramsey campbell who's another of my favorite um favorite writers of of strange and scary fiction his short stories and which are some of the best ever written and that's no hyperbole he, absolutely do that so there's a story of his called um the collector not the collector the um the one set in the fairground um the companion the companion uh it's late everybody it's, uh, it's <laughs> i'm normally in bed by now um he, uh, that has a thing where he's he's looking for this fact this fairground that he remembers as a child and he's ramsey's brilliant at sketching a character in or evoking a character in just a few short sentences so you know this guy by the time you've got to the bottom of the first page and he's a sort of lonely middle-aged man with overbearing parents um and so he's going back in time he's as he's trying to find this fairground that he remembers being taken to as a as a child he's also going back into the memory of his unhappy childhood and it's the same thing he he thinks he finds it and then he's disappointed because it's it's not the actual one and then someone remembers where it is and it's the same thing he has to then go on a a further journey to find it and it's it's really frightening because he has to sort of go through a derelict area and uh he's thinks he's going to get chased by 
a gang of kids and uh, and then he finds this this second abandoned fairground but he's also gone back into into his own the memory of his own past and it's exactly as you say yes that, that, that it's an inner journey as well as an outer journey was was there a like local haunting that kind of inspired you when you were a kid jeremy any any kind of local places that were a bit supposedly haunted that kind of you know sparked your imagination well i had a book that i cherished as a kid called haunted britain that was a, a sort of travel guide to the haunted most haunted sites in the uk but it was written quite seriously it was sort of like an aa it wasn't a like a pop culture book it was like an aa guide or or even ordnance survey guide. you know it's uh, <laughs> and it had um and definitely it had places around I grew, I grew up in yorkshire in leeds and you know we had lots of trips out i was very lucky as a kid to be taken out into the countryside to lots of old abbeys and castles and that caught my imagination from it from an early age so you know most of the abbeys had ghosts uh or yeah. rumors of ghosts bolton abbey was a favorite one going out a bit further to revo uh and and of course whitby as well and so yes they they were part of my landscape but but perhaps less uh celebrated just the just the places around where i lived when i was about um uh 10 we moved to a house that was wet that was out in the middle of nowhere it was down a lonely farm track and there was yeah. um the scariest woods you could imagine just opposite the house and there was no 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 street lights and there was nobody else around that was absolutely terrifying i think that formed me more than anything i was just going to say i i went to, uh, it was my wife's birthday the week we went to york and you couldn't move for tripping over ghost tours so i'm just wondering is it, i think it's like a yorkshire thing like a sort of a northern thing ghost i think i think it's a tourist attraction thing isn't well, yeah, it? yeah okay yeah but, but <laughs> I, I think york has you you know is supposed to be one of those places that's got more ghosts per square inch than anywhere else so i think that and it's a it's a very old city so and it's got roman ruins and it's got medieval ruins so you sort of see where the ghosts come from and um whitby has its fair share of ghost tours as well i guess because of its windy lanes and its dracula connection uh but i i think yorkshire's a big county so that probably explains yeah. why uh, do you do you believe in ghosts jeremy what's your what's your position on ghosts in general well i've been on quite a journey with it over the years from desperately wanting to believe when i was a kid so much and and then going through a skepticism as a, in early adulthood and when me and Andy were doing ghost stories we, we looked a lot into the psychology of ghosts and Andy's friends with uh, Professor Richard Wiseman who's a who's a real life parapsychologist who's who's really has studied the psychology of a lot of this stuff and that one of the first things we did was took him out for dinner when we started writing and asked him if he'd ever come across anything that uh, ever gave him pause hoping against hope that he was going to say well there was this one incident and he didn't he just said no it's all shit and, <laughs> <laughs> but then oh, having said that he went on to tell us some some pretty disturbing stuff but so but uh, that around that time i was sort of because i, I really bought into richard's worldview and thought oh yes you can account for so much of this through evolutionary psychology and and you know the way that our cognitive faculties work and and then since then i've sort of 
I'm not a full believer, but what I, what I have acquired is a bit more uh, humility in the face of the fact that there's just so much that we don't know. And, you know, one of the modern diseases of of our culture is this idea, this sort of scientific materialism that says we've got absolutely everything nailed. I mean, we know everything there is to know about everything and anything we don't know, we'll find out and there'll be a scientific explanation for one day. And that's actually nonsense because we we're in the middle of a mystery that we've got no understanding of. Uh, you know, mm. we've got to, we've got some understanding of it, but but the scale of it and the you know that science doesn't know where life comes from. Science doesn't understand anything about consciousness, and despite a few people who who say otherwise, so I, I, yeah, I've got a bit more humility in the face of all that mystery. So I'm prepared to accept. <laughs> That there are anomalous experiences that um, that you can't just explain away. Paranormal curious, would that how you describe yourself on the profile? I guess. Yes, I think so. I mean, I'm you know at the same time I kind of don't. I would never buy into the most haunted view of the world and the traditional notion of, <laughs> of ghosts either. So I think it's just there's there are more things in heaven and earth, as the bard puts it. Uh, Steve. Yeah, this is well. This is kind of one of my bread and butter, comfort food subjects. I've always been interested in this since I was a little kid, and growing up on the Osborne Book of Ghosts and God knows what else. But I was like you, Jeremy. I was I was a proper little fox mulder when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, in the me twenties and the nineteen nineties, when everything was about the paranormal, when the X Files was big. I believed everything. And I've become more and more sceptical as I've grown older. Strangely, as I've had more and more experiences, I cannot explain. And my friends have had experiences. Like, I used to work in the Liverpool branch of Forbidden Planet. Oh, yeah. And the only way, the only th- the only way we could explain what was happening in that shop was it was haunted. And this includes two of my friends who are two of the most sceptical people I've ever met in my life. But... As I get older, I'm kind of, I'm like you, I'm kind of seeing ghost shows and saying, oh, fuck off. Just people kind of <laughs> screaming at dust and insects. And I'm sure there's an explanation for some of the things that have happened to me or some of the stuff that happened in the shop. I don't know what it was, but I want to be debunked. I want there to be an explanation because I find that really compelling. And the stuff that can't be debunked becomes even more compelling. And the weird thing is... I don't believe in the supernatural at all. I believe I believe in science. I think science can explain what these things are. It's at a point where, I don't know, maybe ghosts are just something that comes with a house, like rising damp and <laughs> kind of neck curtains and something. It's just like a recording in the air with no sentience. I don't know, but it, it is a fascinating subject. I'm like you now. I'm like, science explains a lot, but there's so much it thinks it knows and we haven't yeah, got there's... a clue. The answer to everything is I don't know. Yeah, David's Dave's got a point now. Yes, I'm, I'm completely sceptical. However, I once found all my shoes piled up into a pyramid in my house. In my loft, I couldn't play any music more recent than the 1930s. I had a, a CD player. I kept taking it up and it wouldn't play anything other than the 30s music. And when I brought it down, it played. Wow. Now, now that's what I call that's music. Weird. I know. And the biggest one is uh, my, my cousin, who is a lady not given to flights of fancy, lived just up the road from me in a very old house, one of the oldest houses in this town. And she swears blind that she walked into her living room 
and there was a little old lady rocking slowly backwards and forwards in a rocking chair. And she doesn't even own a rocking chair, never mind a little old lady. (laughs) So, (laughs) who who knows? Who knows? It's it's weird. The... um... What's happened to poltergeisting though? Do you remember there's been a lot of poltergeisting around? The, 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 the arse has fallen out of the poltergeist scene, don't you think? Where, where are all the poltergeists <laughs> well, these days? Uh, there you are. You see that social contagion in action, because uh, yeah. an idea begins, captures everyone's imagination, and then it spreads, and it's uh, it's the living definition of a meme played out. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, we're definitely due a poltergeist revival. Or, or at the very least, a, a spontaneous human combustion. But let's get on with the point of this podcast is uh, you bring with you three things that scarred you for life. Jeremy, could we please get your first scar? All right. Now, I, they're a mixture of cultural and real. And, of course, to boil it down to three is impossible. But, um, you know, uh, I, I'm going to start um, with Dead of Night, the Ealing film. From, oh, uh, wonderful. The late 1940s which I saw when I was far too young. It would have been a, a BBC Two screening, probably when I was about 10, I'm guessing, 10 or 11. And I, I think I knew about it dimly because there was a still in one of my Alan Frank books, but I didn't know that much about it. And I think I think they'd been a se- I think they'd had an Ealing series on BBC Two where they'd shown the comedies, you know, they'd shown... Uh, the Lavender Hill Mob and the Lady Killers and Passport to Pimlico and and then Dead of Night came on, so I really didn't know what to make of it, and in advance and then the music starts. It's got this terrifying music. George Auric, who was Cocteau's uh, composer, French composer, um, very very disturbing music, and that that was enough. <laughs> And then it it's sort of this very subtle start with this uh, guy who's an architect waking from a terrible terrible dream, and uh, but it's all bright and jolly and very polite, and uh, his wife tells him to calm down and it's just he's having his bad dream again and he's he's going out for a weekend in the country to go and uh, see a client who's um, got a cottage, a lovely cottage out in the country. He's going to stay with him. And so it's it's kind of lulls you and lulls you into a false sense of security. And then the stories begin. They get, they, they, he's, they're lots of guests gathered for a weekend and uh, they, they've all, the subject turns to um, the supernatural and everybody's got a story to tell. So to those that know the later Amicus horror films from the 60s and 70s, that sounds a familiar formula. This is where it started. It all started with Dead of Night. And the stories, there's, there's five stories in all, and they're beautifully paced. And they, they sort of, the first one is is pretty upsetting about um, a guy who who's, has a near-death experience, a racing driver, and then he wakes up in hospital and uh, basically the, the hearse is coming for him. He, he, he should have died. And it's it's got a very disturbing ending. Uh, again, no spoilers. And then the stories progress until you get to the final one, which is one of the most frightening things I've ever seen, which is 
and still still works if you've never seen it it's this it's the original story of the original version of the ventriloquist who gets uh gets taken over by his dummy and michael redgrave plays the ventriloquist and the story is introduced by it's the psychiatrist just like we were saying that this battle between reason and the irrational it's a psychiatrist who's waited till the end to tell his story and he's poo-pooed everyone else's story and then just like I did with Richard Wiseman, someone says to him, has there ever been anything in your career that you can't explain? And he says, well, there was this one case. <laughs> and he goes on to tell the story of the uh, the ventriloquist possessed by his dummy. But the thing that sets it apart is Michael Redgrave was a brilliant actor, a genuinely brilliant actor. And there are, there's a number of people who think that this is the best thing he ever did you know given that given what he played that the best thing he ever did was this not quite a b picture but piece of popular entertainment um and he is so convincing he plays it with such commitment that you absolutely believe it and the genius of it is you don't know if it's all in his mind or if this dummy is somehow coming alive and possessing him. You really don't know. They play it absolutely brilliantly. And there's a couple of moments that you just can't explain. And because he's playing it for absolute real, you buy it. I knew you wouldn't leave me, you'll go. I knew you'd come back. Not for long, my boy. Not for long. You're going to stop in jail for years and years and years and years. That wouldn't suit me. But you'll you tell them the truth. You, you'll tell them it wasn't my fault. What sort of dummy do you think I am? He's basically sh shut up in a madhouse at the end without giving too much away. In a very interesting foreshadowing of Psycho. And you know, Hitchcock was a was an absolute magpie. And there's definite, there's a shot at the end of that story that Hitchcock absolutely steals for, um, uh, for Tony Perkins in Psycho. And, you know, you're devastated by this story. And I'd be devastated if I saw it now. But seeing it age 10 or 11, I really was, I was so scared I couldn't move, I think, by the end of that story. And you think, well, that's the end of the film. But this is where the film then packs its greatest punch because it's kept its best till last. And this innocent story of the architect who's gone out for his weekend in the country to hear all these ghost stories having started with a bad dream he descends into his own dream without giving the reasons away why and the climax of his absolute nightmare is hugo fitch the ventriloquist dummy coming to life and oh. getting off a chair where he's been sat and walking towards it <laughs> i am nemming so scared <laughs> What is it with ventriloquist that. dummies? They keep appearing in this podcast series as being... <laughs> it started with yeah. Dave in the first episode, scared of a ventriloquist dummy, and they're still, to this day, terrifying everyone. I have a question. Uh, yes. I love Dead of Night. I'm just interested in the Basil Radford, you know, the, the, the sequence of mm -hmm. Basil Radford and Norton Wayne. They're basically doing charts in Caldecott, aren't they, from Lady of Anishes. I'm just interested, because that's, that's a far more comedic story compared to the absolute horrors yeah, and it's around been, it it's you know it's just brilliant structure it's been thrown in as the light relief to sort of wrong foot you and and to relieve the tension 
and it comes directly before the ventriloquist dummy story. So it's a bit like it's like um, the same thing you do if you were trying to do a jump scare where you you get the audience to relax and then you sucker punch them. It, it's, it has that effect in the but in, you know, in the bigger picture of things. So it's it's been put there very much for that reason. And um, it's actually an adaptation of an H.G. Wells story um, called The Inexperienced Ghost, because uh, about three of the stories are adaptations of um, of existing ghost stories. And, you know, it's very light and it's not supposed to be scary, but it really, what it just softens you up for <laughs> what's to come with you. <laughs> so my, my question basically is, do you think there's a strong connection between humour and horror? Absolutely. Totally. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we observed that in, in the League of Gentlemen when we were sort of consciously blending the two. And, but we'd, we'd, we'd already known that, I think, you know, probably from watching things like Dead of Night, but also another of our favourite films, one of the absolute greats, uh, American Werewolf in London, which is an extraordinary blend mm. of, of comedy and horror, but it's not a parody. You know, it's, there's, no, there's no piss take in American Werewolf. It takes its horror absolutely 100% seriously, but it uses the humour, again, to sort of wrong foot you, to play with the tension, to, to provide relief, and then make wind up the tension even more. And it's, I think if you have a taste for one, you tend to have a taste for the other. So there's lots of comedy people that love horror. And it's, you know, it was never just us uh, out of our generation of comedy people in this country. And, and you know, you, you meet a lot of them. And so the, the two do seem to go together. They're both very visceral forms. They're not intellectual. You know, they you feel them both. And um, and and the rhythms and timings of of comedy are very similar to when you start when you make you know when you start telling your own scary stories you realise that the same kind of rhythms and timings are very important in generating scares as well. That whole link between comedy and horror has always fascinated me. I, I think it's almost not essential because obviously you can i watched hereditary for the first time over the weekend and it destroyed me there's not a, there's no laughs in hereditary a moment now. <laughs> at all not at all but then there was a debate on twitter earlier this year where some film twitter guy basically said how difficult it is to do comedy horror it's one of the most difficult genres and loads of people were agreeing with him and i kind of thought well, if it's so difficult, why are there countless examples of it done perfectly? From, I mean, it's not that it's, I, I take it it's not an easy thing to do, but I was like reeling off films and TV shows in my head more and more and more. I was kind of thinking, I imagine it is a, a difficult thing to do, but so many people have done it beautifully. Like you said, um, there's American Werewolf in London. So many 1980s horrors have a huge comedy element to this day theatre of blood is my ultimate the mix between absolute unrelenting horror and the darkest blackest laugh out loud comedy yeah return of the living dead comedy is another one oh yeah 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 do you think it's an actually do you think it's a difficult genre to pull off i think it's it's difficult if it if it's if you don't do it you know i think in the same same as comedy i think you have to have funny bones, as they say, to do co- to to be able to do comedy, and you have to have scary bones, as me and Andy always used to say, to to do to do scary stuff. And but often people who have funny bones have scary bones as well. And 
and I, I think if you if you don't have the have have those faculties or tastes or whatever you want to call them, then it's it's almost impossible. I don't think I don't think someone in just this, you know someone who didn't have a sense of humour couldn't couldn't generate comic material and um and it's the same with with scary stuff i think if you if you you know if you don't have it you can't do it so but i think where the two go together it comes quite naturally yeah i was just going to ask do you think the the perfect format for the ghost story is is the the short story do you think jeremy yeah i think i think there's far more there's far more great ghost short ghost stories horror stories than there is novels it's hard to sustain over over the length of the novel, I think. Yeah. yeah. Before we move on from this, can I just mention one of my favourite comic horrors is the Abominable Doctor Fives. Oh yeah, love both. Oh of them. yeah. In yeah. in particular, the scene where a guy's just been shot by a, a a unicorn fired from across the street from a catapult, and as they're having <laughs> a very serious talk in the foreground about the murders, they you see him unscrewing him from the wall. In the back, his legs rotating around in the background. It's fantastic. <laughs> it is brilliant. Yeah. Scene that got me as a kid. I can't remember if it was number one or number two, but it's the scene with the snake, kind of um, menacing some guys. It's years since I've seen it. A bald guy. Basically, you, the audience is led to believe this guy is going to get bitten by a snake and killed. It turns out to be a mechanical device. The phone rings puts the phone to his ear and a spike comes out the receiver through his head. I was like, that's the best thing I've ever... That's the best misdirection I've and ever the seen. The other in thing in, with Fibes, another film I saw when I was far too young, I think I saw it at school. We had a we had a school film society where they'd show inappropriate films on a Monday night after school. <laughs> and uh, Fibes was one of them. And the, yeah, the other thing that was really unsettling is it was like Theatre of Blood. There were many stalwarts of British comedy in it. So there's Arthur Lowe meets a, yeah. a very unpleasant end um in in one of the fans films it might be the first one and uh peter jeffrey who was another face that you knew from sitcoms and comedy films um so it, so that was that was very upsetting because you associated them with coziness and they were then suddenly in this realm of unthinkable violence and uh, it was very upsetting it was like all security gone yeah Okay, well, Dead of Night going in there is your first scar, Jeremy. Could we have your second scar, please? Yeah, well, I'll go for a real-life um, scarring, which uh, feeding the rabbit. So, so the, how the first, I had a pet rabbit. Um, I would have been about six or seven, and it was in a hutch at the bottom of the garden. And this was before we lived in the house opposite the scary woods. This was in a more sort of normal suburban house in North Leeds. And so there was a garden with a sort of wooded area. It wasn't a big garden, but there was some trees at the back. But there was a rockery, and which was like a lump covered in rocks. And it was actually an air raid shelter. It was an old air raid shelter. And it had a rotten wooden sort of planks, a set of planks painted peeling green uh, over over what would have been the entrance. And we were just cautioned never to go into it or never to go near it. And I never knew what was inside it. Uh, and I, I began to think I might have had a dream about waking up and 
and they opened and the, the these planks being pulled off and there was an old man living inside and that, and seeing Whoa. an old toilet in the corner now of course that must have been a dream but it got to the point where i was confused between whether that was a dream or, or a memory anyway the rabbit in the hutch was out at the back of the garden near the rockery under the trees and it was my job to go and feed the rabbit carrots that was the deal that if i had the rabbit i had to feed him and there was a porch light on the back door but it didn't reach very far it's it kind of only reached really a few feet into the garden it didn't get anywhere near the trees and the rockery where the hutch was so that meant step step this is creeping me out already (laughs) (laughs) it meant stepping out into the dark to to poke the parrot through the and so it must have been winter you know because it was getting dark at four o'clock as it does in yorkshire so i uh I what I started doing was pretending that I'd fed the rabbit and just chucking the carrot off over into the bushes. <laughs> so this poor this poor starving rabbit was getting more and more feral and no one could understand it. I can remember my mum said, What's wrong with the rabbit Melvin? She said to my dad, it's like a wild animal. And uh because he was starving to death. Bloody starving. Because I was too oh, scared to feed it. In the end, um, I remember there was a there was a man who used to come and do odd jobs called Mick, and uh, he he took the rabbit away. It probably ended up in his pot. But um, <laughs> anyway, so to this day, I have a mixture of of terrible guilt combined with the the kind of helplessness in the face of that primal fear of there was because nothing could have got me out into into uh into that darkness is, is it the teeth i mean I, I had a rabbit when i was a kid named after pat nevin the everton player when i was a kid and um i used to feed it the same as you and it's the way its teeth used to come up to the 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 the, the little fence gores and you know rasp away because it was they're, they're quite they've got a bad like a nasty no i'm not not slagging rabbits off but they've got a bit of a nasty side to them haven't they i think well so. they certainly if you don't feed them they have yeah. But <laughs> yeah they do seem to hate that <laughs> it, it, was, it wasn't the rabbit actually that i was scared i didn't i wasn't scared of the rabbit it was the darkness that contained the rabbit and the rockery next to it so um i think if the rabbit had been you know just put nearer the back door i would none of that sorry business would have happened but uh, it was just the fact the rabbit was in the darkness, and um, so yes, that that I carry that weight with me still. And surely, if if this was a horror story, as I walk back from my shed <laughs> in the house, <laughs> black, something would be lurking there with teeth. Uh, do you mean this? This is this is a wild statement, but um, having we've got family up in the north, and I grew up down in Devon, but. I always think there's a different type of darkness in the north. Would you agree that it's got a different? There's a different sense of dark. Well, it's certainly in Yorkshire and and where we are, and where particularly where I am now, which is on the edge of the Dales on Ilkley Moor. Um, yes, it's very dark, and it's get and it gets very wild and windy and cold. Uh, so it's uh, yeah, it certainly stimulates the imagination. And is there an animal from the like you know this kind of fiction or anything that sticks in your mind that kind of has scared you over the years, like an animal in a horror movie or in a ghost story or anything like that? Well, we'll come on to that because my that that takes us on to my third choice. Perfect. Um, Let's do that. Which is another again probably around the same time that I was watching Dead of Night. There was a 
series by Nigel Neal, the great uh, British science fiction horror supernatural television writer who uh, who created Quatermass. He had a series on ITV in the 1970s called Beasts. And now yeah, I was enough fantastic. of a fan of Nigel Neal. Oh, well, a fan of, you know, of science fiction and horror by the time I was um, 10 to know his name and to know who he was. You know, I'd probably seen one of the Quatermass films. Uh, I wasn't, wasn't allowed to watch Quatermass in the pit, but I think I'd seen the Quatermass experiment. And I, I knew, I, I knew absolutely who Nigel Neal was. And, and, and I remember reading in uh, the Yorkshire Post, which was the paper we took, that the man who created Quatermass had a new series coming on Friday nights called Beasts on ITV. So I was very excited about this. And because it was on ITV at nine o'clock on a Friday night, nobody questioned whether it was suitable or not, I think, because it was because it was on mainstream telly and it wasn't on late. But nobody else wanted to watch it. And we had a, we had a little telly upstairs, little black and white telly in my mum's room. So I was allowed to go and watch it upstairs. And this was in the second house in the scary house so i was a bit older than the rabbit yeah i would have been three or four years older and uh it was sort of quite a long thin house it was an old it was two old farmers cottages like workmen's cottages that had been knocked together to make a house so it had a very long thin corridor and the stairs were at one end so you would everyone else would be sat in the living room downstairs you go along a long thin corridor downstairs up these stairs and then you'd have to come the same distance back along the little long thin corridor upstairs to get to my mum's bedroom. So you, it was like one of those ghost stories. You had to, you were, you'd gone away from <laughs> the journey and then you'd gone away again. <laughs> so you were pretty isolated up there in, in my mum's bedroom. And, um, and I put the telly on and now I can't have watched, I'm, I'm, I don't know what the broadcast order was, but the one I remember watching first was called What Big Eyes which I think was probably one of the later ones broadcast, so my memory might be jumbled. But the premise was, it was um, brilliant actor, uh, Patrick McGee, who was uh, one of Kubrick's favourites. Um, and he was a, a, a sort of amateur scientist but who believed that he could turn himself into a werewolf with, um, by injecting himself with wolf blood. He was a ex total eccentric. And it was all told through the um, eyes of, who was the actor? Was it Mick Ford? Somebody really good, younger actor, um, who, uh, no, it wasn't Mick Ford. It was the guy who was in originally in Brimstone and Treacle, in the original production of Brimstone and Treacle. Anyway, we digress. He was, he was like an RSPCA guy who'd, who'd been assigned to check out this... Um, guy who the old guy who's this amateur scientist who ran a pet shop to find out that there was some mystery about animals going missing and importing wolves and it all unfurled very slowly but it played this game throughout the episode was was the guy crazy or could he really turn himself into a wolf men are supposed to be able to change from their own shape into animals. Uh, particularly the wolves. Uh, 
the werewolf. Yes, from the old English were for man, man-wolf. It's a very ancient and widespread belief. Yes, but that doesn't mean that... Uh... Mm. And the end of it was he he died. He he, he had a, his daughter was was part of it, and she, they were alone with his corpse covered with a sheet. And the whole thing was he thought he may be about to turn into a wolf under the sheet, and it was done so subtly that you you thought you saw something start to move as if his face was elongating, and. Um, and for a for a split second, for about maybe two or three seconds, you thought the sheet was going to come off and there was going to be a werewolf underneath it. And I genuinely believed it. And I was so scared. I was so scared at what I was going to see. And I, it was, again, that same fear where you can't move. I wanted to turn yeah. it off because I didn't want to see in case he was a wolf. And But I couldn't move. I literally couldn't move to turn the off switch. I was paralysed. Wow. And and then the, the sheet comes off and actually, no spoilers, but uh, it re- it made such an impact that it got me to that level of fear. Um, and then, but <laughs> remarkably, I came back for more because then I also remember seeing Baby, which is the, oh, the most the terrifying. That's, I still think that's I still think the it, one that I got still, to it me. Still, it still works. I think it still, it's still, it's there on YouTube. Uh, you know, strangely, I um, I've been recommending loads of old seventies, eighties, Scarred for Life type TV shows to a mate of mine who's only like thirty, thirty one, and she's lapping it up. She loved Baby, and during Barty's party, yeah, which is they're the two, they're the two best, yeah, yeah, basically for the listeners' benefit and Andy, it's just two old, an old couple in one location, their house as flesh-eating rats are getting closer and closer and it's like a play but you never see them you just hear the scratching and the squeaking getting louder and louder constantly in the background of the episode but i recommended she was blown away by that blown away by the whole of beasts but she without spoiling the ending of baby because it's i still think it's one of the greatest and scariest endings in horror history she sent a screen grab of an image from the ending of Baby, and I think we know what that is, with lol kind of crying laughing emoji. What the hell is this? I'm pissing myself laughing. I'm like, come on. <laughs> but she wouldn't hear it. She was. She found it hilarious, but I'm fascinated by that kind of um, generational... The thing is, of course, you couldn't do that when Baby was... It wasn't designed to carry that weight because yeah. it, was, it was broadcast in 1976... No but video recorders didn't exist, so there was no way of anyone at home freezing an image or anything like that, and yeah. wasn't designed to be to be looked at in that way. It was it was it came came and went. It was it was almost sublimate. Split seconds. It's, it's like on screen for barely a second, and so it's quite unfair, I think, to to do that to it because it wasn't built to do that. But it was built to do what it did when you what when you see it for a second or two seconds or whatever it is. And and it definitely works in that context. But the genius of both of those two stories in particular, Barty's Party and um, which I came to appreciate as an out coming back to Beasts as an adult, um was they're just beautiful, brilliant pieces of writing. And the thing that they both have in common is the 
supernatural phenomena that happens or the monstrous phenomena that happens in, in Barty's party is it actually a reflection of what's going on in the inner lives mm. of the characters so so in Barty's party it's a it's an empty a, an empty nest couple whose children have left home and they're, they're basically their marriage is breaking down and in the absence of the children and, and the rats in the walls are the 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 rats eating away at their own at their marriage and their security and their life <laughs> and and one married mapped beautifully onto the other and it, it, baby is all about an abusive relationship which is uh, between the yeah. younger couple and um who, who where the where the the wife played by jane wymark is, uh, is, is 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 pregnant and but but that relationship's getting uglier and uglier across the across the episode and so the thing you see at the end is also a reflection of the ugliness of that relationship. So the emotional power of it as a, as a drama marries up to the supernatural thing. And it's, it's brilliant. There's, yeah. there's, there's so little that actually does that that well. You know, it's mm. like a, you will, you'll get that on, on the page in, in, a, in fiction more than you will in any kind of horror film. But it's up there with The Exorcist or something for me in terms of how well it does it. Absolutely, yeah. I think yeah, I think the the episode that I got more out of the second or third time I watched it was the Pauline Quirk one. Oh yeah, special offer, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Where, because that that's about an inner struggle, isn't it? As well, in a way, because she obviously yeah. she's emotionally attached to the the manager. This poltergeist story. Yeah, hey, there you go, poltergeist. Hey, yeah, but, yeah. But where pol- are those guys now? Was it, it's like a poltergeist squirrel or something, wasn't it? I think. Yeah, it was... well, it's, it's um, it's a <laughs> yes, it is, isn't it? It's a little creature, isn't it? You're right. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's in a supermarket. It's very, very down to earth and very mundane. It's almost like a a British Carrie, because you think she's got psychic powers. Whereas American one is in a high school and it's the prom queen, and ours is a dowdy girl who works in like the local quickie kind of thing. Yeah, and it's like it's a a bargain supermarket as well, isn't it? It doesn't even have the Sainsbury's. So, just, you know, a question for you guys on this then. I mean, that was on at 9 p.m., you know, weekend evening or whatever. Friday night. Uh, Friday night, do you think, do you think, you know, because horror and scares and stuff used to be a bit more, I feel like it used to be a bit more mainstream. I grew up, you know, like Hammer Horror, which was like late night on Channel 4 and Dracula and Tra- Tales from the Crypt, etc. But did you feel like um, traditional mainstream horror is fading a little bit? Would we ever get that at 9pm on a Friday on BBC One, Two, ITV nowadays Well, of course, the, the cultural landscape's changed so much that the way people watch tele- television has, has changed so much. So you can't, that experience has gone now. The Because there was only three channels when Beasts went out. So, you know, you were either watching whatever was on BBC One at that time, or you were watching that. So it, it, there was much less choice involved. And so it, it became... I mean, there wasn't much horror on television. That's not not like that. Not not a sort of original horror. But there was there was a lot more strange stuff. And um, yes, you could rely on something, couldn't you? Like the Amiga Factor. The, every t- every sort of season would have something like that. Something with some supernatural content. Um, and may, and that's yes. I think from terrestrial television, that's there's there's much less now of that kind of stuff. But but of course, there's much more american stuff that you would get you know via your streamers that that we would never have had access to anything like that uh, when we were kids yeah yeah i think it was far more mainstream we have a thing we call a 445 club which is 
the idea that at 4.45 on a, a weekday afternoon, children could be absolutely terrified by any show we put on. It's, like, children, <laughs> are st- children are stones and things like that. You know, yes, that's incredible. true. That's true. Of course. A lot of the HTV stuff is incredible stuff that, you know. Well, I think there was a thought that it was for children. You know, that that, that, yes. that sort of scary stuff and supernatural stuff was, was kid stuff. And clearly mm. that was borne out by by exactly as you said, that that slot. And and even on BBC where it was a bit more polite, they would have um they would have stuff, wouldn't they? There was I mean, well, obviously Doctor Who is uh is part of that, but there there were other things that sneaked through as well. Well that's the thing, one one thing I discovered right in volume one, the amount of research we had to do over three and a half years, that my memories went false yes the 70s was a bombardment of kiddie horror and it it wasn't like cuddly (laughs) like when we were buying um sweets and crisps and cigarette cards and i don't know typhoon tea cards whereas now they would probably they they would tone down the horror elements and make them cartoony you look at some of the stuff that we had and it was full-on horror for children aimed at children like my mum it must have got on to the fact that I loved horror from about the age of four. Yeah. I remember on the way home from work, she used to pop into a department, a famous department store in Liverpool called Blacklist yeah. that closed down years ago. And she came home with this big black hardcover book with a kind of Conan the Barbarian on the front <laughs> and Dracula in Gothic script at the top. And it, as it transpires, as I was researching it, it's New English Libraries comic strip a comic book that lasted 12 issues called dracula it was um european horror strips but it was not for children she just picked it up and thought ah Stephen likes horror he's five you'll like this if any of our listeners google new english library dracula 1972 look at those images and ask yourself if that's okay for a five-year-old because that (laughs) book traumatized me i've still got my copy it's held together with um 40 year old sticky tape and I'll be buried with it. But it's one of the scariest books I'd ever seen at the time. And to this day, it still unsettles me. Well, I, But I, that was in the children's yeah, book section. I, I was the same. I, I had There was one birthday. It was probably my ninth birthday or my tenth birthday. And the word must have got round amongst the mums that I, you know, that I like scary stuff. I like creepy stuff. And so I got a load of paperbacks that that year that were that there was uh, um two two of the pan books of horror two or three of the fontana book of great ghost stories with the most terrifying covers and there was there was uh, there were a set of editions that had these brilliant but not suitable for nine-year-old covers of special <laughs> ghosts coming back from the dead but but certainly those von Fowl books the idea that you would give them to a kid <laughs> I mean, there's one yeah. story in there. I mean, I can still remember the opening line of the Barry Payne story of it was easy to kill a goldfish where <laughs> a psycho goes through bigger and bigger things until he gets to it's easy to kill a man, you know, having <laughs> having killed a cat by pouring blue paint down his, mat, his throat. <laughs> and imagine me nine years, nine years old. But this, so this terrifying story... Um, about the most sadistic thing you've ever ever read um set in the after the french revolution of uh, or in in 19th century france about um a beautiful maid and 
and the the mistress is jealous of her and just has her mutilated and turned into a monster <laughs> oh, and God. cast into a side. And it was the, I mean, I, I couldn't read it now if I had to pick it up and read it. So, you know, that was, that went on. Yeah. There was no, yeah, there was no filtering of, of anything. It was just, there was a teacher in, in school. We went to um, summer camp, Colomendi camp, yeah. which was a staple for um, Scouse kids in North Wales. And I think it was, I must have been 10 or 11. The teacher said, if you get to bed in good time in the dormitories, I'll give you a bedtime story. Which we did, because we were so excited. A ghost story, he said. He read out a story from one of the Pan Book of Horror volumes, which I've still got. And when I found them in charity shops, I would always look to see if that story was in it, and I finally got it. It's about a guy who works for British Rail, comes home early from work one night to find his wife shagging another bloke. So he knocks them both out, drags them to the tracks in the tunnels, and they're basically their arms and legs are amputated by the trains going past, oh and then the, rat, the rats in the tunnels eat what's left. But he thought that was okay to read. No, no, kids. Have a great sleep. <laughs> sleep tight, y'all. We were petrified. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, Chris Tarrant's always said it, but this is what they want. <laughs> it's true. Those, wow. Those books, uh, I used to go to local news agents, and those books used to be on the uh, on the wire rack next to the yeah, Target yeah. Doctor Who's and Ackerton Sacks. You know, you, yeah, you get yeah. those fabulous covers like, um, I think it's a Fontana one. Where it's like a skull, but the, the face, the skin's melting off the skull. It's just that's the one. That's the one I got. Horrible, yeah, horrible things. Horrible things. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Well, Jeremy, uh, there, there it is. Then your three scars: uh, number one, Dead of Night; number two, Feeding the Rabbit; number three, Beasts on ITV, nine PM. Absolutely fine on a Friday night back in the day. Uh, thank you so much. Obviously, as we said in the intro, you're an incredibly busy man. Tell us what you've got coming up. Um. Um, well, so me and Andy have got uh, uh, the Warlock effect is uh, is out now, which is uh, actually the first of, um, of, of uh, well, at least two books. We've got another one to write, um, but we're 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 in the process of also adapting it for television. So we're just um, we're just writing a pilot uh, script of of the first um, adaptation of the first book of, of that, and then I am collaborating with um, Joanne Sfar, who's a French comic book. Uh, brilliant French comic book and graphic novelist, uh, writer and artist. Uh, and um, it's a, a series we're developing about a psychiatrist that treats monsters. So that is uh, that's taking up all my time at the moment. Well, it's been fantastic to have you on, Jeremy. Thank you so, so much. Uh, as we said, you know, take care putting the bins out tonight. Obviously, there is that darkness out there waiting for you. I, I, need, I need some carrots quick. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's great to have you on. Uh, Jeremy Dyson, thank you so much for chatting to Scarred for Life. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Scarred for Life. Thank you for joining us. A huge thank you again to the brilliant Jeremy Dyson. And remember, do have nightmares, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>